If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, that passage that Jess just read for us, Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, but now. Over the past few weeks, many of you have shared how Paul's words up to this, but now, have made you feel. You've said things like, this has been so heavy and difficult. Paul's teaching has been really weighty. I don't want to say it's been depressing, but, well, kind of. And the thing is, this is right where Paul wants us emotionally, feeling the weight of sin and the problems that go with it, because there is something else that Paul wants us to feel and know even more deeply than the problem of sin. You know, last week I made a mistake when preaching chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. I said to you at one point that it was what Paul's argument had been heading to all along, relentlessly heading to that passage. But I myself lost sight of Paul's larger argument. I was caught a bit in the weeds of his proving our sinfulness and enslavement to the power of sin outside of Jesus because it is actually here in chapter 3, verse 21, where we discover what Paul has been relentlessly heading towards all along. And it is the great but now. You see, here's what he wanted to get on about since chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, and really from chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, namely the righteousness of God and the glory of Christ. Because this is what the story of the whole Bible has been relentlessly heading toward. It is here in what Paul will now proclaim in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. It is here that we find the turning point of the long, grand story of all of humanity, all leading up to this massive, cataclysmic, world-altering, but now. And this turning point represents the promise and the possibility of who we may be because of who we can be in. This was Paul's point at the start of the letter, at the very start of the letter. Look at it. Turn back. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. I'm a slave of Messiah Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's always been the story. The story concerning his son, Jesus, Messiah, our master, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, you just saying that, was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, through Jesus, we have received grace. So I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. I said that to someone this morning. Said, how are you doing this morning, Pastor? I am eager to preach the good news to Salida this morning. I'm eager. For I am not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith, for faith. In other words, it's been 
from faith from first to last, just as it has always been written, the righteous shall live by faith. This last week, I was on my morning prayer walk, something that begins in darkness in this winter season. And, and this is what I saw. This is what I saw on my prayer walk. Can, can you bring the lights down on the stage for just a second, Russ? I know that this was not in the run-through, but just like, I just want you to see this as clear as you... Like, look at that. Isn't that amazing? Like, I... I'm walking along and I'm seeing the sun is not quite broken, the the horizon of the mountains and it's just lighting up the clouds and you can see these little bits of of blue and and at the same time, right, you can see all of this darkness. And as I was walking, I immediately thought of the righteousness of God being revealed. There's this The righteousness of God breaks over the horizon of all of humanity and it creates this kind of landscape of of light and glory and beauty and yet all of these bits of darkness. That's part of the proclamation of the good news. It's understanding and fully accepting just how bad things are. It's part of what the rising sun of the good news does. It reveals how bad we are so that we might be humbled together enough to eventually get to this place where we can actually accept grace. Freely offered grace. Now, honestly, I have found that this is something that's actually hard for humans to receive. Grace. Because of our pride. Once the glorious sunrise of the righteousness of God was revealed across the landscape of humanity in Paul's opening, he knew that it was also revealing the dark bits. And he knew he had to get us to a place of humbling in dust and ashes on the ground, which was the point of chapter 1, verses 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, to prove how bad things are without Jesus, to prove how bad we are without Jesus culminating in the devastating verdict last week that all of us are under this power called sin, this pulsating, living power called sin. The whole world trapped by it, ruled by it, stained by it, and thus condemned by it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within what? What right at that point? You see, family, this has been the problem all along in the story of humanity, described in detail in those holy scriptures that Paul refers to at the beginning of this letter, in his first sentence of the letter, a story that recalls and recounts the problem of sin, the stain of it, the indelible mark that it makes on every single one of us. It's why the law wasn't there in the first place, right? To address this problem that separates us from the righteousness of God, who is himself the definition of rightness and goodness and purity and love. And when we read the story, the whole story from beginning to end, this sweeping meta story of of the redemption of the world, in the very beginning, what do we find in the beginning of the story? 
We find humanity cast out of God's presence, which they enjoyed in the garden. And from that very moment, the mission of God was launched to answer our questions. How can we get back to that place? What will be the way for us to safely enter into the presence of a righteous and holy God where we might dwell with him in harmony and wholeness and happiness? In that moment, at the beginning of the story, all of humanity was wondering, what now? And so it's later in the story that we watch this righteous God give Moses the law. itself a display of his character and his righteousness. And if you've read the Bible, you're familiar with this important part of our history, of our story, right? God's people enslaved in desperate bondage under the thumb of a tyrannical and evil ruler named Pharaoh of Egypt. And God, this righteous God, moves in power to set them free. And we, and we read the story actually in the law, in Torah, of the instructions. Do you, do you remember it? What did they have to build in the wilderness? A, a tabernacle, right? And do you remember what was, what was festooning the inside of the tabernacle? It was trees and, and fruit and pomegranates. It was this depiction of this return to the garden and, and it was furnished with all of these implements of, of worship to be a place where God may once again dwell with his people, where he could be present, creating a place of harmony and wholeness and happiness once again. And in the story we read, in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, we read that Yahweh calls from, to Moses from the tent. From the tent. Huh. Because Moses couldn't go in family. The people couldn't go into the tent. They couldn't yet dwell inside with God and his presence, leaving the people asking, what now? And so Leviticus. You remember that part of the story, right? The the place where all Bible reading plans go to die. (laughs) And is yet this incredibly powerful and beautiful part of the story. Yes, this long bit on sacrifices and animals and presses. Listen, I don't do well with blood. I have to skip over parts. It's so graphic, I start to get queasy. And at the same time, it's beautiful. Because it's how God is making a way, a way for sinful, impure, unclean, defiled, and enslaved people to enter into his presence and be free, to be free from sin, free of separation, free from defilement, feeling dirty, and welcomed into relationship with Yahweh Elohim. In the pathway, offerings, sacrifices, Grain offerings, fellowship offerings, burnt offerings, purification offerings, restitution offerings, ritual offerings, and feasts, (laughs) right? Seven of them throughout the year, many of them a week long. God knows how to party. 
celebrations of relationship with Yahweh Elohim, all of them culminating in the greatest feast and sacrifice of them all, the annual day of atonement. This is the day that would clear a year of sins from the people of Israel, which had kept them from their closest with their righteous God. It was the one day in the whole year where the high priest of God could enter into the most holy place behind the curtain to stand in front of, do you remember it? What was he standing in front of? mercy seat that sat on the ark of the covenant this mercy seat the place where god himself in a cloud before the high priest would dwell on the mercy seat this place of reconciliation and the high priest would slaughter animals and take blood and splash it on that mercy seat as a representation of him making right his people so that they could be in his presence for a limited time a limited time it it is the great but now of the old covenant atonement the law sacrifices god graciously providing a way for people to live in his presence so that this is why it's so important to read the whole story you guys because when you get to the end of leviticus and you make it numbers chapter 1 verse 1 We read this, and Yahweh spoke to Moses in the tent. (gasps) It worked. Leviticus worked. He's no longer outside of the tent, but it's now been made a way for him to be inside of the tent in the welcoming presence of Yahweh. But alas, we keep reading from Numbers all the way to the end of the First Testament found in Chronicles, and we find one long story of humanity's continual return, return to enslavement, to sin, the inability of the law to be kept, rivers of blood of animals being shed to try and cover it. And all along the story, all along, if you have eyes to see, there are hints all along in the story that there is a a better way Because the writer to the Hebrews tells us in in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It was just impossible. See, all of it was meant to create a longing in humanity for a divine solution that would once and for all take care of this cruel, tyrannical, evil master called sin. The world waiting for light to break over the horizon into the darkness. The world crying out, what now, God? If the goats and the bulls aren't going to do it, what now? You see, this is This is the good news. This is part of, we have to have this whole story, family. Paul, in his commitment to history and to our story, in his eagerness to proclaim this good news, had the integrity to tell the whole story. He didn't skip over, didn't put a gigantic parenthesis and then X out 118 to 320. Geez, that was just too depressing. No, he had the integrity to give us the weighty and heavy problem of our sin and enslavement to it because we needed that humbling. We need it. We need to be humbled. We need to be made ready for grace. To see all of the connections of our story into this meta story that has been and is being spoken by 
God since the very beginning. We need again and again to step into the story ourselves and to take up that cry and to feel that cry again in our sin. What now? If for no other reason to identify with those who do not yet understand this story and are unaware of the enslavement they suffer and the danger, the danger that they are in, that there is a righteous creator, ruler, God with whom they must be reconciled and that without their own day of atonement, without blood being shed and applied, they will never experience cleansing, freedom, and fellowship that will bring harmony, wholeness, happiness, and life. <laughs> Abundant, grace-enabled, joy-infused, new creation, cleansed from sin, free from Satan, made one with Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit, life. Is that what we all want? So how? How do we get there? How does anyone? What now? Would you pray with me? Father, righteous God, in the name of your Son and for his glory, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to see the full extent of our rescue through your righteousness applied to us, giving us freedom from the enslavement of sin and access into your welcoming presence. And may that reality and transformation usher us in to a place of harmony and wholeness and happiness, happiness. God, I want to see lots of smiles on faces this morning. Yes, and very amen. In Jesus' name. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. In just a few words, Paul captures both the discontinuity and the continuity of God's plan of salvation and rescue in this unfolding story, making its way from the Old, the First Testament, to the New Testament, the Second Testament. The discontinuity, what, what is that? God is revealing his righteousness apart from the law. Our being made right will not come from any effort on our part to keep the law, for Paul has just said in verse 20, no one will be righteous in his sight by works of the law. But there's continuity. The entire First Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings are testifying to the new work of God in the Messiah. For those who have eyes to see, it has been there all along. Every single story whispering the name of Jesus. He made it clear to his disciples in Luke 24. Look at it. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the writings must be fulfilled. And then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Old Testament scriptures. Something, by the way, that he will still do for you today. He is still opening minds to understand this whole first part of the Bible. He also said to them, this is what is written in the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, what follows? Here's what was written. That the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed 
in his name, in the Messiah's name, to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is saying it was there. It was there all along, the whole way through the story. This story, my story, was there. And this is the way to the saving righteousness of God, which we defined. You probably don't remember it. It was a sermon on November 13th, almost two months ago now. We defined the saving righteousness of God as this. His right and just initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. Right? Attribute, activity, status. Those are the three components of the righteousness of God. And how does this not our own righteousness of God get bestowed on us? As excited as we are at this point to hear it, and I hope you are, I think Paul is more excited to tell you exactly how the righteousness of God gets applied to us. I can just see him pacing back and forth as he's dictating this letter, right? Because that's what he's doing. Chapter 16, 22. Tertius is writing this letter down. And Paul is just, he's probably, I just want to believe he's waving his hands too, like getting all crazy. Like, I can't wait. Okay, here we are. Finally, 321. Let's go, Tertius. 322. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. So the only way that I can receive the status of righteous before God is through faith in the one and only Messiah whose name is Jesus. So I come with the empty hands of faith like a little kid on allowance day. Just give me, give me, give me the righteousness And this status is available to all who believe because there is no distinction. The righteousness of God is activated only for those who believe, but it is also for all those who believe, regardless of background, socioeconomic status, gender, or ethnicity. And what a glorious reminder on the day before we celebrate a holiday holiday named Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday. A day which should stop us short and cause us to remember that there is no distinction made in God's kingdom on the basis of ethnicity. Disciples of Jesus growing one step closer to him among all people should be those who celebrate such a holiday with a deeper understanding than those who don't know Jesus. Our being righteous by faith alone in Jesus means that God's people, in the words of Frank Thielman, will come from all ethnic groups and all walks of life. Within the church, any discrimination among people on their basis of social status, their economic resources, or their ethnic origins emerges from a serious misunderstanding of the good news. Anytime the church today becomes an exclusive club for people of a certain income bracket, social group, ethnicity, or political persuasion, that people is not bearing faithful witness to God's word. We must make it easy, grace, for people of all kinds, of all kinds, to worship and work together here cultivating an atmosphere that welcomes social diversity in all its forms, despite the complexity and difficulty of that kind of pursuit. Because we got the Holy Spirit on our side, (laughs) empowering us to do that and to be that. 
And may God continue to make us a place where there is no distinction, no distinction, but where we are all one in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Because all have sinned and lack the glory of God. Wait, what? You might say, that's not what that verse says. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the word here is more precisely translated, lack. And I believe this is really important for what is going on in God making us righteous. And Paul had a particular point to use the word that he used because the problem of sin in us is that it has robbed us of our ability to contain within us and beautifully therefore display and reflect the glory of God. At creation, man and woman was made complete. They were complete containers of God's glory. And what sin does is it it comes along and kind of punches a hole in the container so that we are not able any longer to take hold of the glory of God. We lack the glory of God. And that's precisely what Paul wants us to see in the way that he says it. And that's different, I think, than fall short of. Because fall short of almost implies this kind of attempt, like it's an attempt on my part. There's something, right? It's like a basket. It's like a short guy like me trying to dunk on a 10-foot hoop. I just keep, (laughs) and white man can't jump. Can I say that before Martin Luther King Jr. Day? I think I can. Right? And and then this, this idea of like, it falls short of, can make us think, well, if I just keep trying and trying and trying, I can get it. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He says, You have to be transformed so that you now can be filled with the glory of God. This is the state to which all believers should be moving, but moved by God. This is God's project, family. Paul will say elsewhere that the project of God is to transform us from one degree of glory to another. God is transforming us from one degree of glory of glory to another, this state that we were always meant to be in. We are made for his glory, for the glory of God, which is his glory, for Paul has always been associated with his incorruptibility and his eternality. So if you're wondering, what is the glory of God? It's, it's that he's incorruptible and eternal, and God is saying, that's what I have for you. To be in that... <laughs> Pastor George said this morning when we were praying, he said, wouldn't it be great to just not sin for like half a day? And I said, brother, wouldn't it be great to not sin for 10 minutes? (laughs) See, in the fall, we lost that capability and quality. All of us did. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about that. We need it bestowed upon us. And so God acts, verse 24. They are righteous, those who believe, are righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Messiah Jesus. Oh my goodness, every single word is important in this verse. We are made right freely because there is nothing that we can offer by way of payment, no sacrifice, no gift to acquit us of our sin and its total effect upon us. And this comes by God's grace. 
undeserved but joyfully offered generosity on the part of a righteous God. He has not been forced into this. He has not been guilted into this. He has not been argued into this. He does not do this grudgingly and with complaint, with a sigh of exasperation. Oh, I suppose. Here's some righteousness. He does it with unreserved generosity. And how is our being made righteous freely by grace made possible? Through redemption. Now, we don't use this word often today, and so you may not know what Paul meant by it. This is not as if you're taking your coupon to Safeway and redeeming it. Setting free the discounts in your life. Rather, as one commentator says, in the ancient world, you might become a slave as a result of losing a war or because marauding parties attacked your territory and captured you and your family. But sometimes in the ancient world, you actually became a slave because of economic circumstances. There were no bankruptcy laws to protect you in the ancient world. There was no chapter 11, no chapter 13. So suppose you borrowed some money to start a business and you lose your shirt during an economic downturn in the ancient world. What do you do? You don't, there's no American Express, there's no Visa, no MasterCard. Well, you sold yourself into slavery and maybe your whole family into slavery. There was nothing else that you could do. But also suppose that you have a well-to-do cousin 25 miles away, a day's journey, who, who hears that you've sold yourself into slavery. And not only is this cousin well-to-do, he's actually a pretty decent guy. And so he decides to buy you back. In that world, they would say, he redeems you. He travels a day's journey to where you've become a slave, makes an arrangement with your owner, and you have now been redeemed. The price has been paid for your freedom because slaves can't buy their own freedom. There's nothing that they could do to change their status of slavery. And just like Israel, right, this this theme is picked up on just, just like Israel needed redemption from the slavery of Egypt and it was supplied by a righteous God. You can read that in Exodus chapter 6. So we need redemption from the slavery of sin. And how, then Paul says, is this redemption supplied? He says it's in Messiah Jesus. To which we may say, okay, okay, yes, Paul, I get it's in Jesus, but how? How is it in Jesus that I am redeemed? Verse 25, God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by Jesus' blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Okay, so now do you see why it's important to know the whole story of the Bible? Because now we see with clarity what God was doing all along. How were the people to whom God had applied his righteousness for all of those centuries before Jesus, how were they saved? Have you ever asked that question? If it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to, to save them and redeem them, well, then how were they saved? Because they didn't have Jesus. Well, Paul tells us in God's restraint, in his forbearance, he, he passed over, says, here's history, Here's Jesus. It's all of history before. Here's all these people that are sinning in the Old Covenant. And he passed over that sin because he saw this. He knew what was, he knew who was coming, what he was going to do. 
in his forbearance, he passed over, he passed over. Do you recognize that story in the whole story of God? Passover? What happened when the angel of death passed over the people and why did he pass over certain people? The blood. The angel of death passed over those who were covered by blood on their doorposts as they huddled in their homes. And then for all of those years, year by year, on the Day of Atonement, when the mercy seat was splashed with the blood of bulls and goats, all along, do you see all along, it was a picture. All along, it was pointing to a sacrifice that would reconcile God and man. All along, every year, every Day of Atonement, every Passover, God was looking over the sins of his people to Jesus who would be presented as the mercy seat, the place of reconciliation, the place of peace, the place of the demonstration of the righteousness of God. Wow! Man, what a good storyteller God is. And as Paul says, it is this act of God the Father conspiring with God the Son, Jesus, to provide his blood at the time of Passover over 2,000 years ago on the cross, his, his death, a sin offering, Paul will say in Romans 8, 3, which would not only take care of the sins of all of the people before Jesus, but it would also take care of all of the sins of all of the people after Jesus. Namely, it will take care of all of your sin. <sighs> I hope you believe that that's good news this morning. Verse 26, God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, at the present time, so that he would be righteous and the righteouser. Okay, so I'm, a lot of translations say just and the justifier, but I want you to see that the, Paul is using the same word group all the way through. Seven times he uses this Word so that we can see the emphasis on the righteousness of God. It is chiefly about God and what He's doing for us. You see, the, de the death of Jesus, we see in this verse, is the vindication of God. It's the vindication of God. You might say, well, what does that mean? We all know that it is not just or righteous for a judge to overlook the guilt of an offender and set him free, claiming, well, grace, just being gracious. We, we know that that's not just. There's no righteousness in that. And so God has to prove his righteousness and forbearance in passing over sin. He has to vindicate his righteousness. And the only way that that is possible is to step in and provide the redemption himself. Because in our sin, there is no way that we could pay the price and provide our own redemption. We're enslaved. There was nothing that we could do but now. <laughs> there was nothing we could offer but now. So what fruit, Romans 6, was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. For you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the war in the Lord. Walk as children of life. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now, 
Now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blatantless before him. In the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to the things that by nature are not God's. But now you know God, or rather have become known by God. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Is this not the theme of the Bible? But now, the grand but now that is a banner over my life. Hallelujah. We are in Jesus God made the one who did not know sin. <sighs> to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's just absolutely stunning. That that's who I can be because of Jesus. Jesus. The objective reality of what God in his righteousness has done. His right and just initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. Oh, it is my prayer that you would believe this this morning. We prayed for you this morning that you'd be set free by this truth. That's what he's doing He's breaking chains. One of my favorite stories about this ever is from Don Carson. I'd, I'd love to close by sharing it with you and bring all of this together. Okay, I'm bringing the whole story together. So we're gonna put our imagination caps on. Are you ready? Got them on firmly. Are you ready to imagine? Imagine two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown. I know, remarkably Jewish names. Smith and Brown. It's the day before the first Passover, and they're having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't, you don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and, and daubed the two doorposts with blood and, and put the blood on the lintel? Ha, haven't you done that? You're all ready and, and packed to go, right? You're, you're going to eat your whole Passover meal with, with your family? Well, well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary when you think of all the things that have gone on around here recently, right? Flies and rivers turning to blood and, and boils popping out all over everybody. It's pretty awful, and, and now there's this threat of the firstborn being killed, you know? I mean, it's all right for you. You've got three sons. I've got one son, and I like my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight, you know? I mean, I know what God says. I put the blood there, but I'm still awfully scared. I mean, it's scary, says Smith. And Brown responds, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. That night, the angel of death sweeps through the land. 
which one of them lost their son? Well, the answer is neither. Because death didn't pass over them on the ground or the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That is what silences the accuser, the Satan. The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. It silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times have you writhed in agony over your sin? Asking if God can ever love you. If he can ever care for you enough. I have. It's been so stupid again. So stupid. What are you going to say in that moment? God, I, I tried. I tried awfully hard. I, I tried to achieve your glory. I, I did my best. No, I was bad, but I, I, I tried. No. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome our sin by the blood of the Lamb family. This is the ground of all human assurance before God. Do you want assurance of your faith? You overcome by the blood of the Lamb. This is the ground of our faith. It is not, this sentence years ago set me free. It is not the intensity of my faith that saves me, but the object of it. <laughs> it's not how strong I believe. It's who I believe in. Do you know John 10? There is no one that is able to pluck you out of my hand. I and the Father are one, and there is no one able to pluck you out of my hand. Who's holding on to who? Not even you can pluck you out of his hand. Worship team, would you come up? Before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and dies for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven Jesus stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart, which is an old way of saying no one can send me away. Amen? Yes, and very amen in Jesus.